and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 102 on February 9, 2023. Thanks for being back on the Consumer Podcast. As always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by making a donation on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate, either in fiat currency or cryptocurrencies if you like to do that. This week, our guest is Dr. Angela Baird from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, and we're talking about chemophobia. What exactly is that? Why are people afraid of chemicals that sometimes they might not have to be afraid of, and are there chemicals that we should be afraid of? You can listen to the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, I'm talking to my colleague Fred Roder about intellectual property rules that the European Commission is trying to change for pharmaceuticals. And lastly... Uh, a new era of protectionism seems to be dawning on the EU as, uh, as uh, EU leaders are trying to fight back against the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. So let's start with this one. Tensions are high, say also the analyst at Deutsche Welle, when it comes to the trade dispute between the US and the EU. The European Union is adapting its rules in the wake of new green energy subsidies pro, uh, introduced by the United States. Speaking in Belgium today, the European Commission president said competition is good when there is a level playing field. Ursula von der Leyen says the generous tax breaks in America's new Inflation Reduction Act could lure away EU businesses and disadvantage European companies. Her announcement comes ahead of an EU-US ministerial meeting on trade and technology. Let's go now to DW's Terry Schultz, who joins us uh, from Brussels. Terry, what is the EU most worried about here? Well, on the face of it, Nick, it sounds great that the U.S. would be putting 400 billion euros, more than 400 billion euros, in fact, into environmentally friendly processes and products. But the problem for Europe is that a lot of these measures in the Inflation Reduction Act are aimed at boosting domestic production for U.S. companies. And that, of course, could put Europe at a disadvantage. And there's a lot of worry over this. And what Ursula von der Leyen is saying is that the EU needs to rebalance the playing field. She laid out in this speech in Bruges that the EU needs to become more assertive in its policies and, and not let the United States take advantage of it. At the same time, the president said that she's very much urging cooperation over confrontation. But I'm telling you that nerves are so frayed over this IRA that the head of the European Parliament's Trade Committee said today that he believes the IRA rises to the level of the, US, uh, the EU needing to file a complaint at the World Trade Organization. So the question for the EU right now is whether they are able to match the subsidies that are started by the United States and that have varying consequences on EU industry. Those tax credits are used for environmental purposes and are intending to not just boost the purchasing power crisis, um, but also to, uh, to alleviate many of the environmental challenges that the US is facing. Um, so there are the tax credits uh, for uh, about 30% for um, domestic renovations and also $7,500 for new electric vehicles. However, it disproportionately favors North American producers, say the Europeans, and are now uh, discussing how to address that. France is eager to discuss funding of the EU's new green industry plan 
Economy Minister Bruno Le Maire will be traveling to Washington um, this week and he praised strong proposals uh, that he says go in the right direction to promote made-in-Europe industries, according to a statement circulated to the press. As the European Commission prepares to present its Green Industrial Plan at the next EU Leaders' Summit this week, the French have their eyes set on one issue in particular, the financing aspect. Of course, Germany and France are at the forefront of thinking about this. However, some are not too keen on it. Um, Finance Minister Christian Lindner is definitely not on the side of those who think there should be new uh, common debt obligations because we had quite a few of these already for the recovery fund um, for uh, for COVID and a lot of that money hasn't even been used yet. So one of the instances where funding might be reallocated is for the is from the Chips Act. This is where the EU about a year ago tried to match the uh, semiconductor shortage. A problem that is being addressed in the US by funding a chip industry in Europe. However, turns out uh, that is a big gamble because you're banking on the technology of the future that you might not know what it's going to be. And so a lot of those funds were already taken away from other programs and those and those funds will probably now be reallocated um, to, uh, to match some of those subsidies. Uh, the problem with that is, of course, that we end up with a, a subsidy war um, which is not great. And, 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 and presumably, the first instinct uh, of Brussels, which is to bring this to the World Trade Organization, the WTO, is probably a better idea. Uh, let the courts hash out what exactly is a distortive um, market mechanism. In my views, tax credits can definitely also be extended to European consumers, um, because that, to me, does not exactly represent a subsidy in so far that it is not discriminate. I do th also think that there's um, some unfair balancing being done when somebody gets a tax credit for an American-produced vehicle, but not for a European-produced vehicle. Um, however, matching that by spending more money on the European front now that we already have quite an inflation problem is probably not the right way to go about this. The issue in general is that there's a misunderstanding on the advantages of unilateral free trade. If you take the examples of New Zealand or Singapore that have unilaterally opened their markets, uh, despite there being trade imbalances and the, despite there being distortions, you see that those countries massively uh, benefit from not hampering um, what consumers can access to or what, what uh, local industry uh, can access. So unilaterally dropping trade barriers is an advantage for countries already, even if your biggest trade partners are not really matching that. But the issues should, in any case, not be solved by spending more, uh, but by resolving these amicably uh, on the WTO level. Especially right now, we cannot afford starting a trade war um, when we have an actual war in Europe that should incentivize us to friendshore and to work together with those countries that are allied. Next up, we have Fred Roder, Managing Director of the Consumer Choice Center, telling us more about new rules by the European Commission on intellectual property. So, Fred, the European Commission has proposed changes to how medical and pharmaceutical innovations should be regulated in the future. So, what are they suggesting? Yes, the... Uh draft plans of the EU Commission are um, going in many directions, but I would like to focus just on uh, pharmaceutical innovation. So there's one proposal to reduce the uh, effective 
duration of patents of market exclusivity by two years, down from 10 to eight in average. There is another proposal to first look whether pharmaceutical innovations are actually valuable for society before giving them exclusivity. And uh, there is a third move to make the so-called compulsory licensing. That is when the government says, yes, you have a patent, but we currently cannot afford you to honor your patent. And we um, just take your patent and give it to someone else to manufacture that drug. Um, to make that mechanism easier accessible and easier to execute for governments. So from the European perspective, um, they're trying to make uh, medical innovation more accessible. But in your view, what are the actual effects of these changes that they're suggesting? First of all, is a good time to look at our regulatory framework for medical and pharmaceutical innovation. Obviously, the years 2020 to 2022 were heavily shaped by uh, the COVID pandemic, and uh, it is good to look at how we can make our biotech and pharmaceutical industries more competitive. Uh, Europe has a lot of global leadership, uh, leads globally in many areas of this. BioNTech is a German company, which was one of the first companies that came up with a very novel vaccine against COVID. So that is good. Um, the conclusions the commission's suggestions come to are, in my opinion, going to in the other direction. It is actually incentivizing medical innovation, investing in bold moves in research and development less. So um, I'm very worried that this is a signal to leading biotech and pharmaceutical companies to focus less on research and development in Europe, uh, bringing drugs later to the market in Europe and um, focusing on North America, Japan, and the UK. Um, I mean, just in one example is that five out of the 10 largest pharmaceutical companies in the world are based in Europe, but actually only one out of these five is based in the EU, in France. Uh, two are in Switzerland, two are in the UK. So two we lost uh, thanks to Brexit. And now in a, in a recent announcement, we could see that BioNTech from Germany announced to move most of their cancer vaccine research to the United Kingdom because they see too much bureaucracy in Germany and the EU. Uh, cancer vaccines were initially the, the main focus of BioNTech and the COVID vaccine rather like a lucky byproduct. Uh, but the company is much more focused these days also on curing or finding vaccines for, for many cancers. And the announcement that they move this most of it out of the EU into the UK is a slap in the face of the EU. Um, and the new rules the commission proposes will just accelerate this. And that's bad news for um, research and development in Europe, but also bad, will be bad news for patients uh, in Europe because drugs will most likely enter the market later in the EU than in other parts of the world. And it's also globally bad news, because if you limit research in some countries, it's not that all of it moves there. We will still have very talented researchers in Europe, but they are just bound by um, or have to face less investments and uh, resources for research, uh, a worse market environment. So um, if your mission is to cure the diseases we cannot cure yet, um, Europe is going the wrong, the EU is going the wrong way. 
So going the wrong way while Europe is trying to speed up medical innovation within Europe, um, these are just proposed changes so far. What would your message be to lawmakers who will eventually look at these uh, changes proposed by the Commission? Um, what can they do? Should they just say blanket no? What, what, are, what, are, what are some best practices that they could implement um, to, to speed up medical innovation in the UK? Many are surprised by the direction the Commission took on this strategy. It is also opposite to what the Commission did over the last two or three years on the level of the World Trade Organization when it comes to protecting innovation and patents. So there's a bit of a 180-degree turn by the same commission. So that's a bit confusing. Um, we need to build up a lot of pressure. We need to encourage national governments and MEPs to speak up against these plans um, because otherwise we might jeopardize the innovative future of Europe's biotech and pharmaceutical industries. I would go so far and say our current framework for pharmaceutical innovation is pretty good if you compare it globally. Um, that's why we have so much innovation so far in Europe in that area. Um, one thing we should consider entertaining is to um, allow uh, reciprocity between the approval decisions of regulators such as the European Medicines Agency um, and the American FDA to create actually an incentive for regulators to be less bureaucratic and leaner in the approval system that will reduce cost for the companies applying for these approvals, which means these drugs can be cheaper, drugs get to the patients quicker, potentially by years. Um, so we create a competition between different regulators, which is actually something we have within the EU for certain medicines. Uh, you can go to a national regulator and if it gets approved in one country, it's approved all across the EU. Um, and uh, we need to bring that competition to a global level. Switzerland actually just recently started the process of uh, accepting approvals of medical devices from foreign regulatory bodies, select ones. Um, and the EU should rather come up with more innovative novel ideas like how to get the innovation we already have quicker to patients and not how to inhibit innovation. A lot of uh, good inputs there for the European uh, Commission and uh, the lawmakers in the European Union. Thank you so much, Fred, for your assessment. And last but not least, we have our guest of the week. So we are here with the guest of the week, Dr. Angela Beard from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. She's in the Department of Health Uh, sciences and Technology, uh, where she is a senior researcher uh, in the Consumer Behavior Group. Angela, I've been very, very interested in your work because you talk a lot about a lot of the issues that we like to talk about, and that is consumer perception, consumer behavior. And one of the things you look on, uh, you research on, sorry, um, is uh, chemophobia. So for the listeners who hear this term for the first time, we are aware of arachnophobia. Those are the peoples that don't like spiders. What is chemophobia? Um, chemophobia, maybe the first thing I should say about chemophobia is it's not a classical phobia as, as we know, for example, for the arachnophobia. Um, we use the term because it initially was used in a book about about sort of consumers views of chemicals and we thought it was interesting to to be able to describe this somewhat irrational um, fear of synthetic chemicals so this this worry that something might hurt us that from an expert percep perception is not that not that dangerous 
So that's where we where we stole it from, but I would probably distinct it from other phobias. That makes sense. So um, it's always good to have sort of a, a good term to describe something or to lead off from. So um, let's go a bit more into detail. Um, you describe uh, chemophobia. Um, is it in a sense that it is um, misplaced risk perception? What exactly are we talking about? What are people afraid of exactly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what we wanted to measure is really this misplacing of, of worries. Um, because there's definitely certain risks that people should be aware of, but then um, there's this over over worrying or over certain things. For ex The classical example is aspartame. So aspartame, uh, the, the artificial sweetener that is used quite frequently, for example, in Coke Zero, um, many people are under the impression that this might cause cancer because they've heard it somehow, somewhere. And uh, this is sort of the feeling we wanted to measure because from an expert perspective, from a toxicologist perspective, there's hardly any other substance that is, that is as well researched as aspartame because based on all of the controversy, many studies were done and um, they're pretty confident that in, in the way we call consume aspartame, it's safe. But still we, we get people, I, I encounter this quite frequently when I, when I see people drinking a Diet Coke, they, they would go, oh, have you heard this is this is cancerogenic and so on while at the same time maybe smoking a cigarette which is definitely cancerogenic so um so that that, that was that was what we wanted to measure fair enough so what are some of the most recurring chemicals that that people have adverse feeling towards that if you ask them with like which ones would they cite at the top of their head mm -hmm. i would say um aspartame is one of them then uh, glutamate um, or, or monosodium glutamate is one one that is also frequently mentioned. Um, of course, there's also chemicals that even experts would agree that we have certain certain issues, certain problems with them, pesticides, fungicides. Um, that's that's also mentioned quite frequently by by consumers. And so. What, how do you go about this in the first place, by the way? Let the listeners maybe understand a bit about the methodology. How do you find these things out? Is this just a survey? Initially, it was interviews. So a PhD student of mine, Rita Sale, she actually talked to consumers about this topic. And she started very broadly just asking them about their consumer behavior and then just um, moving closer and closer to the topic and asking them about their knowledge that they have of the principles of, of um, toxicology. And one thing that um, we saw was that many consumers are unaware of certain basic principles of, of toxicology, those response, um, the fact that not everything that is natural is safe, sort of these, these principles, and there's some misunderstandings there as well. So going from these misunderstandings, we developed a questionnaire that we then spread in a, in a larger sample of consumers to see how representative these views are. And these two things that I've mentioned that we've initially uncovered in the interviews, we also found in the survey. Can you tell us anything about sort of the age um, uh, discrepancies that might exist there? Are older people more likely to have chemophobia than younger people? What's the, what's the distribution? I don't think there were large age differences. Um, there's also not big educational differences in in chemophobia or in the knowledge of of these of these principles um there is a slight gender difference as far as i i can remember but they're not huge so i wouldn't say age or or any of the other social demographics necessarily explain 
the the differences in in chemophobia. I once read one of these headlines that said that a long a large amount of Americans were um, uh, very concerned about the fact that there that some products and things in this on this planet contain DNA um, or that the water contains CO2. Is this downstream from from this larger problem that you explained? Yeah, it's a so. Um, but I guess in this in this matter, we also should talk a little bit about a. a in my opinion, very valid criticism of the, the things we've measured. I mean, our scale uses, uses you have to use a certain term to ask people about these things. So I called it before the irrational fear of chemicals. So we we sort of had to ask people about this. So an, an, a classical item would be, I wish I would live in a world that doesn't contain any chemicals. <laughs> Now, this also sounds very silly from, from a, an expert perspective, if we think that everything's chemical around us, so no air, no water, not very good. But then, to be quite um, frank, I think that the problem also comes a little bit from the term, because a consumer doesn't necessarily think of air and water when we say chemicals. A consumer might think of something bubbling in a, in, a, in, a, in a glass, or they might think of the classical examples of chemicals that they're afraid of. So the very basic misunderstanding comes from the terminology used. That when we say chemical as experts, we mean everything, whereas consumers have a very specific thing in mind when we ask them about chemicals. So one thing you mentioned that I found quite interesting is that you said you didn't see a big discrepancy in education. So um, I think the some of the knee-jerk reactions to, to hearing this might be, oh, people are just not educated enough. If our school curriculum was adapted enough, people would understand this better. So if that's not the case, how can consumers actually become more knowledgeable about chemicals? Yeah, I, I agree with you. The knee-jerk reaction is the best description for that. I'm confronted with that a lot when I talk about chemophobia. So it's, it's, um, it's a thing in risk research we call the knowledge deficit model. So this model that experts sometimes tend to have is that you just need to explain to consumers. You need to give them the same knowledge that you have, and then everything is going to be the same as you see the world. So consumers suddenly will change their opinion, will see different risks, and will be more rational about it. And this is a model that has been rejected a lot because we just know that providing information sometimes doesn't change people's opinions. And even if they trust the information, it might not change their opinions to, to some other reason. So I think there's only so much we can do with education. I think um, we would benefit from talking about certain specific misunderstandings. I think this dose response principle, I see a lot of opportunities there um, to explain this to people because Usually we, we understand this in a different context. So if we add more sugar to tea, we know it gets sweeter. So there's there's nice analogies that you can make and explain to people how, um, how those response mechanisms might work. So that's one thing. And then I guess this, this misunderstanding that anything that is natural is safer than, than um, something synthetic or made from a laboratory, that's another topic. So I think there's specific misconceptions that, that could be clarified with information. We also did some studies that show if, if nicely presented in a video that might reduce some risk perception, some of this irrational risk perception or misplaced risk perception. Uh, but definitely not all of it, because sometimes um, in this area, 
consumers might also reject a chemical or a chemical risk for some other reason. So one of the topics that you touch upon is uh, essentially relates to farming, which is incidentally in farming is where uh, a lot of those conversations happen about uh, synthetic chemicals. But also I've seen that you've done research on uh, on gene editing and gene uh, uh, genetic engineering in general, sort of the, the distinctions between those. And what I find interesting there is that what we experience, if we just take the example of, of glyphosate, which is a very hot topic in the European Union, the argument on the political level is, um, on the one side, this is toxic, and the, the response argument is, farmers need this product, we cannot afford it economically not to use it. Essentially, there's no real argument about um, the, the, the chemicals as such, and as you mentioned, sort of the dosage um, that, that influences uh, whether it's harmful or not. Uh, is there a way from, from a researcher perspective, not a political perspective, but from a researcher perspective, a better way to do this uh, in public debate? Sorry, just to, to clarify your question, to do what better? Well, to discuss whether you know to... the, the authorization of some chemicals in farming, for instance, has become so political ah. that everybody talks yeah, about it. It's not just researchers, not just scientists that talk about it. The broader public is talking about whether to authorize or not authorize a chemical. Um, how, how, do, how could they do it better? I think maybe it's not so much in how, maybe it's more in who. Um, I think that the the whole discussion could benefit from uh, a little bit more honesty about um, about the way farming works. So I I think we frequently hear that, for example, from the organic sector that they say they don't use any of the synthetic chemicals and they're sort of putting fire on on this chemophobia and on this these worries about um, synthetic synthetic chemicals where whereas the discussion should be more focused on which one makes most sense and which one can we use so we maybe need less or which one makes is maybe the the, the least harmful and I think it's it's more a bit of a of a discussion that should come from from different different stakeholders and and also maybe communicate a bit more honestly about um about the way these these are used for example copper in organic farming is is very much used and um i i guess it would it would be useful to discuss this a bit more and not just say copper is something natural so this must be safe no that's exactly right and that does make that, that does make a lot of sense there was something else i wanted to ask you about because i've seen it pop up in your research and the last time we met you mentioned this as well which is um that you also do research with young adults and uh, i think you mentioned also children so um how do young adults and children perceive those risks compared to uh, compared to adults that consume media already? Mm-hmm. Well, um, maybe I should just make a little parenthesis around this because indeed, um, I said, I talked a little bit more about this irrational fear of chemicals, but then there's there's definitely chemicals that we use that might pose a risk to us. So this research mostly happens in this area. So we have some projects that are interested in why certain household chemicals might lead to accidents. And then of course, those accidents happen mostly in young children. And a PhD student of mine, he's actually doing research, he's doing laboratory studies with children where he exposes them to different products, of course, all sealed and safe, um, to see which kind of products attract children. There, there we are more, much more focused on sort of the, the product side. So how, what kind of signals do children take from products? Um, we know that uh, the GHS warning symbols, for example, they do inform adults, but do they maybe also work for children? And uh, of course, 
we, we investigate their very young children. So um, it's mostly perceptual. So is there a color? Is there maybe a comic figure on it? So one of the results we had is if there's like a, um, a, a bird on it, then immediately a child will, will be much more interested in and interact with it. So there's there's much more to focus on on how to deter people or actually um, make them worried about chemicals. Well, this brings me, and I think some of the listeners will think of this immediately. There was this example a couple of years ago with the Tide Pods. For those of you who don't know, the Tide Pods, this, these are these are products that are put in the in the in the washing machine as as a soap uh, to to wash your uh, clothes. And um, some children had been trying to eat these because they look a bit too much like candy. What can you tell us about that? Have you have you looked into this? Indeed, we had them there as well. So um, we actually had some 3D printed Tide Pods to see what uh, how children would interact with them. Um, we didn't see any specific raised interest in these Tide, tide Pods. Um, what we did see, not necessarily for the Tide Pods, but the ones for the for the dishwasher, they are, could also be mistaken for candy. And what we realized is the children were more frequently misunderstood or miscategorizing the, the dishwasher tablets if they were in a packaging. So sometimes you have the package, sometimes you have the, the naked tablets and they could identify the naked tablets way better than if they were packaged. They, they frequently thought it was candy. Um, so we, we think, and this is also found in other areas, that sometimes these preventive measures can also lead to more risk. Um, I'll give you another example of the packagings. So these, in reaction to these Tide Pod um, accidents that did happen in the past, the producers started changing the packaging. So the packaging would be harder to open. However, um, there are there is research that suggests that people were then leaving it open because it was too annoying to open up for the adult, which then is, of course, again, easier access for the child as well. So in this accident prevention area, there's a lot of sort of paradox effects where if you add a layer of safety, maybe you, you create some other problems, sometimes also called the lulling, lulling um, effect. Uh, like the child safe caps, that's another thing we could show that if it has a child safe caps, parents tend to be a little less careful with the with the product, even though child safe doesn't necessarily mean that no children can open it up. Unintended consequences. Well, my the the the, the expression that I would think of immediately. There's super interesting um, uh, research there, uh, Dr. Angela Baird. Uh, that's a, as much time as we have for today. Where can people find out more uh, about your work? Uh, they could follow me on Twitter, for example. That's uh, a underline Beard, B E A R T H. Uh, yeah, where I regularly update on my on my research. And we will be linking uh, towards that on the description of this podcast episode. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Angela Beard, for coming on the podcast. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can follow the Consumer Choice Center on Twitter at Consumer Choice C and find all the links to Twitter and uh, research papers by Dr. Angela Baird uh, from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich uh, in the description of this podcast. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody.